Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, good morning and thank you, Wes. I, uh, I, I don't know if you guys saw this in the back. Um, our, our students, they had their arms around each other during that blessing time, a group of our students in the back, and I just thought that was awesome. I thought it just kind of showed like they, you know, shows the brotherhood and the love they had for each other. So that was really cool. That's why we do that kind of thing, right? We do that because we believe that God is working and moving among us, especially during our student ministry time, and so thankful for that again. Um, Okay, so this morning we are continuing in our series called The One Thing on the Book of Hosea. We're looking at the biblical book of Hosea. Talk a little bit about who Hosea is and what the book is all about here in just a couple of minutes. But as we get started here this morning, you know, if you're a Christian, you know that if you've had a conversation with somebody who is not a Christian before, whether it's a friend or a family member or a coworker, and uh, you've gotten on the subject of maybe what their objections are to Christianity, what it is that they don't believe about it, you know that uh, it, and during those discussions, uh, many times you'll hear that one of the most common objections they have is that Christians don't practice what they preach in some form or fashion, right? And so they'll say either, you know, they don't, they don't live out the way that they say that they believe or uh, their belief really doesn't have enough power or truth to it to actually determine or make any kind of difference. And if you'll talk with them long enough, um, they will ultimately, probably, you'll hear this word, uh, this dreaded word, hypocrite, in reference to Christians. And you and I, uh, who are, you and I, who, if you are a Christian, you, you may not personally agree with that kind of an assessment. Um, you might not think that sentiment, that sentiment is really fair, but really the point is that it doesn't matter because perception is reality. You might ask yourself, why does it matter, you know, what, what uh, others outside the faith think of us? We're just supposed to live kind of genuine lives, and we know whether or not we know Jesus, whether we're a hypocrite, all those kinds of things. Well, I would say this, because Jesus has called us to love the world, Right? And our calling is to really understand and to step into the lives of others who may not believe and have an opportunity to discuss these things with them about why it is that we do believe. And um, several years ago, a researcher by the name of David Kinneman with the Barner Research Group did an extensive research uh, project where he interviewed hundreds of people who were not Christians, just basically asking them, what are your opinions and assessments of Christians you know of people in the church? And this and he found all these different answers, hundreds and so people that he, um, I think it was 500 or so people that he interviewed all over the country from different age backgrounds, and he compiled all of his results in a book that was called Unchristian that was published about 10 years ago. And in that book, what we saw is that there were a lot of unflattering terms that were used for Christians, for those who were not Christians. In other words, They didn't say that they thought Christians were loving or faithful or devoted or religious or faithful. Uh, Most of the time, words words that came up were things like judgmental and hypocritical. In fact, 85% of the people interviewed said that they view Christians as hypocritical. Now, that's a 10-year-old study. I would actually say probably that percentage is is maybe even higher than 85% today if we were to do that same research again. And again, we might disagree with that. I think some of the reaction that we might have to something like that is to say, well, I know there are Christians out there who are like that. But me and my friends and my church, we're not like that, right? We're not hypocritical. And you might be right in some ways. But at the same time, again, perception is reality. Gandhi is famous, once famously said this, and Gandhi's, old, Gandhi's you know, older than 10 years ago, but he famously said this, 
I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, what this brings to the surface is a discussion we're going to be talking about this morning as we get into Hosea chapter 4, which is this, is that we realize at some level, even those who are not believers, that if a true religious belief, something that really matters, is something that's actually going to affect how we live and is actually going to affect some kind of change in the world if it's worth anything. Because a religious belief that doesn't have any impact on our lives or doesn't have any impact on our world is really just kind of sentiment, isn't it? Maybe it makes us feel better, but if it doesn't actually do anything, then really, what's the point? And that's the question that we deal with. We're told in the Bible that as Christians, we're supposed to be different. But what exactly does that mean? I mean some of us, sometimes we're different for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we're different, which makes us judgmental and awkward and sometimes just flat out mean. Sometimes we're different in a way that makes us weird. Right? It's not bad to be weird, but at least be weird for a good reason, right? So why is it that we're supposed to be different? And how is it that we're supposed to be different? We're going to talk about that this morning as we get into Hosea. We continue our series called The One Thing. And as we're going through the book of Hosea, we're talking about the one thing, the one most important thing being the love of God. And in the book of Hosea, we see all kinds of different ways in which the love of God is presented to us. We talked about it last week, like facets of a diamond, that as you turn the diamond, you see God's love uh, presented to us in all kinds of different ways in the book of Hosea. And one of the ways that we see it, honestly and kind of strangely enough, is that we see it through God's judgment words or kind of his discipline towards his people. We're going to see that again in Hosea chapter 4. I think one of the things that is, is really telling about the fact that Hosea's ministry is even, even exists is that as we, look at, as we look at what the Old Testament prophets did, it is actually evidence of God's love that the Old Testament prophets actually existed, that the ministry itself actually existed. Because as we know through history, if you read through biblical history, Israel broke their covenant with God. And once they broke their covenant with God, God was fully within his right to just say, okay, I'm done with you, Israel. You're on your own. I care nothing for you. I'm going to move on. But after they broke the covenant, we see all throughout Scripture these prophets that God sends time and time again to plead with Israel to say, come back to God. He still loves you. He's offering his grace and mercy, and he's calling you back to himself. We saw that last week in Hosea, that amidst all the judgment, there are these, there are these uh, amidst all the judgment oracles, there are, there are these words that come from God through the prophet Hosea that are about love and winning Israel's heart back to God. And so on the one hand, there's judgment, but on the other hand, behind it all is love. And I think one of the things you see in this is that as God loves Israel, it's almost like a father who is loving his children. There is discipline that happens, and discipline is good for your children, and discipline is designed to call them back, especially good discipline is designed to call them back to living the way that they're supposed to live. And good discipline will teach and train and end up being for their own good. And so we see this happening in the book of Hosea, and Hosea's ministry itself is evidence of the fact that God is desperately trying to get his people's attention. The fact that Hosea actually exists is evidence of God's love, because he has not given up on Israel, even though he had every right to do so. And as we're going to see, the fact that he doesn't give up on Israel is good news for us. It's good news for all of us, because Israel is at the center of God's redemptive plan. 
So, as we talk about it here in Hosea chapter 4, we're going to talk about the first three verses. So, if you'll open up to Hosea chapter 4, we're going to focus on the first three verses, spend a lot of time on that, because these three verses actually set up the rest of the chapter, and then we're going to go a little bit into Hosea chapter 5 uh, this morning as well. But these three verses are so key, so we're going to camp here for a while. And the verse, verse 1 says this, the prophet Hosea says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Instead, there is swearing and lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse 3, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Now let's stop here quickly and talk about this. A lot of key phrases pop out in these first few verses. First of all, notice how God addresses Israel. He addresses them as his children. Again, like a loving father who comes to his child and pleads with them out of kind of discipline to say, look, this is the way you're going. You're going wrong. Come back and change the way that you have been living and responding. We can see that although Israel has seemed to make a mockery of their relationship with God, God has not given up. God approaches Israel with tenderness and says to them, you are still my children and I'm calling you back as a loving father would discipline their child. Now, one of the things about the book of Hosea in total is, uh, that's interesting and unique is that on the one hand, God can call Israel his children and then on the other hand, as we're going to get into later on in chapter 4, he calls them whores again. So this is kind of a, I don't know, this is, this is one of those things where you see both what's going on. You see God's love, you see his emotion there, you see his frustration and his anger, but also just overriding compassion and care that he still has for them. On the one hand, you can see how far Israel has gone, but at the same time, God never gives up on his relationship with them. Children, but not just children, children of Israel. And this harkens back to God's promise that he made all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, because the children of Israel are the children of promise, and the promise comes from the promise that God originally made back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he said, I will take your descendants, and I will bless them, and they will be a blessing to the world. We're going to talk about how that fits into God's overall redemptive plan here in a minute, but one thing we need to know is that the reason that God hearkens and uses this phrase, children of Israel, is because he's talking about his faithfulness. He says, look, I made a promise to Abraham. And I will stay faithful to that promise. So you've got God's faithfulness on the one hand and his loving kindness on the other as he loves his children, the children of Israel. In these verses, though, they're not just children of Israel. They are also the inhabitants of the land, which on the one hand, and that, that the, the phrase the land is actually played out throughout these chapters in particular, and it means at least a couple of different things. First of all, it does refer to just the geographic land that Israel lives in. So they're boundaries of the northern and southern kingdom, which were real land boundaries at this point. But more than that, it refers to the, to the representation of what the land is supposed to do. Because the land was the place where God dwelt with his people, Israel. It was also the place where God was blessing his people. So it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Because it was a place where the people were designed to flourish, where God would bless them, and all the other nations would look at Israel and they'd say, oh, look at how much their God is blessing them. Because in the ancient world, if your God was powerful, your God would bless you. And so God was designed, designed this, this nation to be his people who were blessed 
so that it would be a witness to the rest of the world. And then third, this was supposed to be a place where Israel lived out God's law, which was representative of his character, in a way that was winsome to the rest of the world. In a way in which God could say, look, this is my display people. They are living out my character in front of the rest of the world and so that all the other nations would be attracted to who God is through Israel. Okay? So this was like almost like the stage for the display people of God. Which is why when God says that there is no knowledge of me in the land, this is a huge problem. Because the land was given for the purpose of people displaying, people who know God, displaying the knowledge of God to the rest of the world. And then when you look at verse 3, you see exactly what's at stake here. You see how far-reaching this is. This is more than just about Israel and a break in their covenant with God. This is more than just about Israel's well-being. This is more than even about Israel's spiritual fidelity towards God. In verse 3, it actually refers to the animals of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. Now, why in the world would those phrases be used in connection to Israel's obedience or disobedience? Because what God is saying is essentially, look, these are my people. This is the redemption plan that I have that reaches out into the entire world. The Bible here is making a, an argument, what's known as an argument from the greater to the lesser. In other words, if, if Israel's faithfulness affects even the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the animals of the field, then it certainly affects everything else on the planet, including all of the other nations. So what is God saying? That my plan of redemption is happening through these people. I have chosen them to be the ones who display my goodness and my character to the rest of the world so that there would be hope for the rest of the nations. So that there would be hope for the world to respond to who, God, who the God of Israel is. Now, Here's the thing, is that this issue is not just about Israel's faithfulness in the end, it's about the hope for the world. Because this small nation, out of the entire population of the world, is picked as God's people to make this widespread impact into all the world by the way that they live. And so, in the last chapter, where God calls out, we looked at this last week, where God calls out Israel's spiritual life, now we see in Hosea chapter 4, in this chapter, that their spiritual life affects the way that they are actually living. And God says, look, instead of my loving kindness being represented in you, instead of my faithfulness being represented in you, which is the way that it should have been for Israel, instead, in, according to verse 2, this is the reputation you have in the world. There's swearing, there's lying, there's murder, there's stealing, there's committing adultery, they're breaking all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed, which is another way of just talking about the, the pattern of injustice that's happening within the ranks there in Israel. In other words, everything that's completely opposite of God's character is actually what Israel is displaying. Instead of faithfulness to him, and instead of loving kindness, this is what they're characterized by. So the question becomes, why is it so important for Israel to live out God's calling. Well, let me give you a brief history of this and what this looks like. How is it that Israel is a part of God's redemptive plan? Well, we got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the very beginning, we're told that God creates human beings in a very good creation, a perfect creation before sin in his image. And at least a part of what that means, a big part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that as human beings, we were created to reflect the glory of our creator to the creation and to one another and even back to God, okay? So when God, when God 
when God designs us, when God creates us, that's what we were supposed to be. Now, that's going well for Genesis 1. It's going well for, for the most part for Genesis 2. And God tells uh, the first human beings, he tells Adam's that you're, Adam, you're to work and to keep the land. In other words, you're to work and to care for my creation. And as you, as you do, you will display my goodness and my uh, glory to the rest of the creation. Even to the animals and the, you know, the animals of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. That's kind of where we get this. But Genesis 3, if you know the story, didn't take long for human beings to rebel against God. The first sin happens, all of that breaks. The image of God is shattered in man to where it's still there, but it's fractured and broken and, needs, and is in need of redemption. And so in the middle of that chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to be specific, God promises that there will be redemption, that another one will come and he will be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. We know on this side of the New Testament that that was pointing directly to Jesus, that Jesus is the serpent crusher. But in Genesis 3, from Genesis 3, basically to Genesis 9, things get a lot worse. There's rebellion and sin all over the place to where God says, I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge the earth. Genesis 6 and then Genesis 9 um, is, is ultimately where God makes the covenant with Noah. And then Genesis 11, it's bad again. And in Genesis 11, we have what's called the Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, human beings have gotten so rebellious against God that they get this bright idea they think we can build a tower to God, and if we get up to the heavens, we can throw God off of his throne, and we can become kings ourselves. God sees this, and he judges it, and he scatters everybody uh, uh, across the planet and confuses their language, which is where we first get this reference to different languages all over the earth. Genesis 12, out of the mess of what happens in the Tower of Babel, God plucks one man by his grace and by his mercy for his plan of redemption by the name of Abram. And he pulls him out and he says, go from the place where you are and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And this land becomes the very same land that's referred to here in Hosea chapter 4. It's the land where Abraham settles. The Israelites end up in slavery in Egypt. And they come back after the exodus to this very same land and settle it. And in Exodus 19, before they go into the land, God says to Israel, you are my, you are my people, you are my kingdom of priests. No longer just the blessed nation of Abraham. You are my treasured possession. You are my people. And from that point forward, Israel becomes the display nation for the rest of the world. So that God is calling all the dispersed nations that are out there from the disobedience of the Tower of Babel back to himself through the nation of Israel. Okay? <clears throat> we get to the prophets. The prophets are all about calling Israel back to this calling, this mission. It's more than just their fidelity to God. It's more than just their own personal relationship with God. It is all of that, but it is also the mission of God going forward into all the earth. And then finally, in the new covenant, we realize that God has not given up yet. The serpent crusher himself has come, and he has started a church and a community that is called to do the very same thing. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. But hopefully you can see this big plan of redemption, because with all of this at stake, this is why God is using so many strong words here. And we're about to get into some strong words as we get into the second part of Hosea chapter 4. And I want us to keep this in perspective, in context. Because God is telling us the truth about this because of his love for the world. And there are some harsh words that are designed to really make us uncomfortable and to wake us up. And we're designed to wake Israel up. Unfortunately, as we know, they didn't respond as, they, as we might have hoped. So verse, verse 4 says this. And look, Hosea, or God starts with the priests. He gets very specific with the people uh, of Israel here in this passage in the next two chapters. He starts with the priests, 
He addresses them first as the spiritual leaders of the community. Then he talks to the people. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see that he talks to the king and the administrative kingdom people. So verse 4, it says this, chapter 4. Let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. And by addressing O priest, he probably seems to be referring to the high priest of Israel at that time. In verse 5, you shall stumble by day, and the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. And I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people, and they are greedy for their iniquity. It shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied, and they shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away understanding." My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them away astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. But I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone." And when their drink is gone, they gave themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame, and a wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So a lot of strong words there. And the first group that God addresses through Hosea is the priesthood, specifically the high priest, and then as he represents all the other priests, the religious leaders in the community. And he goes after them specifically because this is the issue that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, and we'll see it here. We also see it in chapter 5. The big case that God has against Israel is that there is no real knowledge of him in the land. And as he says to the priests, look, you have one job. Your one job is to communicate my instruction, my word to the people so that they will know me. You're supposed to lead them into worship so that they would know me. And obviously you failed at that because there's no knowledge in the land. But then God also calls out some other things like that, that the priests are doing. I think it's just, it's, in other words, it's not just that the priests are kind of abdicating their role to teach. It's also probably that the priests themselves have been led astray. God says, as a result, because, you're, because my people lack knowledge, because you have, as spiritual leaders, abdicated your responsibility, my people have turned to getting instruction from pieces of wood and from their walking sticks, <laughs> pointing basically to the fact that, look, they are going to these false idols, these pieces of wooden statues that are made by human hands, which represent gods who are invented by men, and yet they have the one true God who has created everything, begging them to come back, and they won't come back, and it's because you have led them astray. 
And he, he confronts the priests on this, and he says, look, it's not only that you've abdicated your responsibility, but it also seems that the priests are the ones leading the people to do this. He says, like priests, like people, in verse 8, that was verse 9, in verse 8, he says to them, ultimately, you are the ones who have basically taken advantage of the sacrificial system. You can see that the priests are probably corrupted, and so they're taking advantage of the people to get more than they were supposed to from the people, basically gouging them for spiritual services and religious services. And as a result, the whole thing is crumbling and corrupted. And so one of the struggles with a, a chapter like this is when you read in the book of Hosea, we know there's a lot of metaphorical language that's used in this case. And you get to this place that's really uncomfortable where he talks about men going with prostitutes and all this other stuff. And the question then is, is this God literally saying that the men went to go sleep with prostitutes? Or is he saying this figuratively? Like this is kind of a spiritual, this is a metaphorical way of talking about a spiritual reality. And it really seems like for a lot of reasons that the men of Israel are actually participating in these cultic rituals that involve temple prostitutes and involved getting drunk and drinking or, or eating strange foods as part of worship. And so when you put all that together, what you realize is that this is a really bad, bad situation. I mean, in a lot of ways, it couldn't get much worse than what this looks like here as God paints an honest picture of this. And he says, look, you're not even hiding it. You're doing it on hilltops. <laughs> in other words, you're doing it so that everybody can see this. And you're not even ashamed of it. And you don't even care. And that's the big part in all of this, is that even when God calls them to it, they don't repent, they don't change, they aren't struck by grief, they continue in it. So God confronts the priests and the people, and then finally, in Hosea chapter 5, he confronts the king or the government. In verse 1, he says this, Hear this, O priests, and pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mitzpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore, and Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. There's that third reference to knowing the Lord. And in verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall shall stumble in his guilt, and Judah shall also stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they will go up to seek the Lord, but they will not find him, for he is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children, and now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Now at this point, by the time we get to this place in Hosea, in Hosea chapter 5, all levels of leadership and areas of the, of the structure within Israel have been called under judgment. And in this case, what God is saying is that, King, you have abdicated your responsibility as well, and you are not leading the people in the way that you've been called to. Because the high priest and the king in Israel were designed to work together. And what's, what's kind of really, I don't know if it's ironic, I think it's really intentional, actually, intentional about this, is that the high priest was supposed to be the one who led the people in faithfulness, and the king was supposed to be the one who led the people in loving kindness. So loving kindness then flows out of faithfulness to God so that the character of God is represented in the laws and the way that Israel was supposed to live with one another and in reference to the world. And that was defined by loving kindness or steadfast love. You might also say that it is justice and righteousness as it's called in other places in Scripture. 
And so it was the king's responsibility to govern the people in a way that displayed flourishing according to God's law and displayed uh, loving kindness and justice and righteousness in the land so that all people could flourish and that it would be a representation to the other nations of the God whom Israel is serving and worshiping. And God says on the one hand, high priest, you're responsible for the faithlessness of the nation and king, you are responsible for the lack of loving kindness and justice in the land. And we'll say more about this in a couple of weeks because the justice of God is a huge theme in all the prophets and especially here in Hosea. But it was pleasing to God and evidence of God's character in the land when the people acted justly. You know, this past week we celebrated a man who sounds a lot like Old Testament prophets if you've, if you've been through some of his writings and some of his speeches. But Martin Luther King from... Uh, you know, I, I, was, I hadn't read this in a while. It had been a few years, but his letter from the Birmingham jail, I was reading through it this past, past week. And in that, in that letter is, is where that well-known quote comes from, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I think to myself, part of what he was doing was writing to the Christian leaders of the nation at that time to uh, encourage them to represent justice in their congregations, in their cities, and in their communities. And in large part, what we see here is Hosea calling the king to task because injustice, bloodshed follows bloodshed and murder and all these other things are happening within the community. And at the end of this section, I think what we go back to is really this heartbreaking statement that God makes here in verse 6, chapter 5. He says this, they will seek the Lord, but they will not find him for he has withdrawn from them. This is a heartbreaking statement because the reality of this is that if God has withdrawn from Israel, not only is there no hope for Israel, but as we talked about, there's no hope for the world. Now, in all of this, the biggest thing, the case in, in a nutshell that God is bringing against Israel, again, is that there is no knowledge of God in the land. And it's this kind of hypocrisy that God is confronting here. Because look, God can say to them, there is no knowledge of me in the land because of my character is not being represented by your deeds. That what you're doing, how you're living, my character is not being represented. My faithfulness, my loving kindness is not found anywhere among Israel. Neither is present. But the biggest issue in all of this is that they don't even seem to care. Hosea was one in the line of many prophets that God sent time and time again to Israel to wake them up to this reality. In fact, in the northern kingdom, Hosea is kind of in the middle. There are prophets that come after him. In the whole span of the northern and southern kingdom, Hosea is kind of one of the earlier prophets. And so already God is saying this, and he'll say the same kinds of message, messages through guys like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Repeatedly, over and over again, and yet it seems like the people don't care. I think the biggest thing in all of this is that that is the kind of hypocrisy that God is confronting here. If we're going to talk about what hypocrisy looks like, as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, that as bad as our behavior and deeds may be at times, the big hypocrisy is the failure to think that we don't need God's grace. Is the failure to think that we don't need God's mercy. Is the failure to think that his loving kindness is not as precious as it truly is. You know, God knows we're going to sin, and sinning per se doesn't make us hypocrites as Christians. It makes us people in process who are still being transformed by the Spirit of God. But what makes us hypocrites is believing that our self-righteousness is somehow better than the righteousness of Jesus. 
so that we end up believing that we don't need him. That was the trap the Israelites fell into. That was a trap the leaders fell into. They believed that they didn't really have a need for God, that their sin wasn't that bad, and that his grace and loving kindness wasn't really that big a deal. And I think one thing that I've learned as I've grown as a Christian, we, think, we sometimes think, I, I, I would say probably in every other area of life, as we grow, as we mature, we become more independent. As you grow into a teenager and an adult, you become more independent from your parents than you were, of course, when you were younger, and more independent from others than you were when you were younger. As you grow in certain areas of knowledge, you become more independent at work because you know how to do your job more than you did maybe on the first week or the first month. But when it comes to Christian faith, it's kind of counterintuitive because the more and more we grow and mature in Christ, the more actually dependent we become upon him. The more we realize how much, need, how much in need of his grace and loving kindness we truly are. Independence in the Christian life is a mark of spiritual immaturity. Dependence is a mark of spiritual maturity. I think that's a big deal because any of us who are Christians or have considered following Jesus have asked this question one time or another, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Because it's not like it's something that happens to us necessarily overtly physical. It's not like when you came to believe in Jesus for the first time, a halo popped up above your head or wings sprouted out, angel's wings sprouted out in your back, right? The reality is that that is a spiritual thing that happens inside of you and it certainly has changed you as you continue to follow Jesus. We believe that God's Spirit in us changes us, and we're born again by His Spirit, so there is transformation and change that happens that then is represented outwardly. And maybe if you came to Jesus later on in life, there was a miraculous thing that happened where like, you, it was almost night and day. You changed from one day to another as far as how, how you lived and the desires that you have. But for some people, it doesn't happen like that. Even when they come to Jesus later in life, it's a slower process. And especially for people who are young, kids who come to faith in Jesus, right? They don't have like this whole life behind them where they're like, you know, yeah, when I was seven years old, you know, I was at the strip club selling drugs. And now that I've met Jesus at eight years old, I don't do that anymore, right? I mean, that's not happening. And so the question becomes, how do we know ultimately that we are a Christian? Well, I think as we look at this again, Three times in these two chapters are instructive for us that there is knowledge of God in the land, that there's knowledge of God in our hearts, that we know Jesus. That it's as simple as that, it's as beautiful as that, and it's as complex as that, that we actually do know Jesus. Yes, we know him as our Lord and Savior. Yes, we know who he is, but that we actually really personally know him. And by knowing him, it changes and transforms the way that we live. And so we do change. There are things when we look in Scripture we can say, this is, this is the way I should be living. These are the characteristics of what actually should characterize my life. And by the way, all of those characteristics, like the fruit of the Spirit, are characteristic of Jesus' nature. So the Spirit of God produces the character of Jesus in us. So we should look more like Jesus as we continue to follow him. But at the same time, the question comes back to how do we really know that we're Christians? Because we know Jesus. And we're freed up from things like self-righteousness, self-centeredness, and self-reliance. And we're freed up to trust in him more as we grow and to depend on him more. I think that's the mark of a growing Christian. And this matters, guys, because the same kind of thing that God had called Israel to in the Old Testament is the same calling that he has for us as the New Covenant Church. Except we're not 
We're not limited to just some land out in the Middle East that has borders to it. Now the land is the entire planet where Christians are everywhere. And now we're not limited to laws that are engraved on tablets of stone. But as the prophet says, we are actually living out the reality that God has inscribed his law and his character on our hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28 says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And when that happens, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, you are ambas- we are ambassadors for Christ, as if God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And who is God making his appeal to? He's making his appeal to the world, just as he did with Israel through his people. He makes his appeal through your life and through mine to say to the world, look, this is who I am. This is what my faithfulness and loving kindness looks like in somebody who loves me. And look, Gandhi, I, I quoted Gandhi earlier, one of his better well-known quotes about Christianity. Here's one that's not as well-known, but it's a little bit more encouraging. He says this, look, if all Christians acted like Christ, the whole world would be Christian. It's coming from a guy who was not a Christian, but he knew how beautiful Jesus was, and he said, look, if actually people lived like that, Jesus is so beautiful that the entire world would follow him if they could actually see him in in Christians, in those who claim to follow him. How awesome is that, right? And just as God wanted to display who he was through Israel to the nations around, he's doing it again, and he has not given up on that plan to do that through his people today. And that's our calling. And Jesus will do it, I believe, if we're willing, and if we'll just get out of our own way sometimes. (laughs) That's really what it boils down to. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to get over this posture that says, you have to look like me, you have to believe like me, and above all, you have to vote like me or you're my enemy. Because when Jesus said you're to love your enemy, I don't believe he said, I don't believe he was telling us, make more enemies so that then you can have people to love. I think he was saying, those people who come at you like enemies and whom you might consider to be enemies, who who might expect you to react to them like an enemy, overwhelm them with loving kindness so that you might win them over and those enemies might become your friends. And those enemies might see Jesus in you because Jesus did say, the world will know that I've sent you by the love that you display and the love that you have for one another. Man, if we could just do that, the loving kindness of God through the church, what would that look like? Here's the thing. Love works. It really does. Love changes. It transforms us. Those who know Jesus, if you know Jesus, you've been transformed by the love of God. You can bear witness to that. But the love of God still works through you into the world. And it transforms lives. This is what is at stake. And it's a huge calling. I can't think of anything bigger. And sometimes I wonder, God, why would you choose us to do this? You could do this in so many other ways. You've really chosen your feeble-handed, sometimes hypocritical church to do this. But at the same time, he has. 
and it's a wonderful and amazing calling. This morning, this is how we're going to respond. I, I want to call the band up. If you guys would come up on stage with me. And I'm really excited about this response time that we have today. And I want to give credit to Aaron. He's the one who thought of it because he told me I needed to give him credit for it. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you know Aaron, you know he'd never say something like that. Um, I'm saying it because a lot of people came up to me after first service and like, that's awesome. That's a great idea. And so I had to say, oh, it's Aaron. Aaron did it. So rather than saying that 20 times after this service, I'm just going to say it once. It was Aaron's idea. But it's great. I love this idea. So what we're going to do in response, and I think it fits exactly with what we're talking about, about how we cultivate love for our city, for the people around us. How do we cultivate God's loving kindness in our own hearts so that people might know who Jesus is? This is what we're going to do. On the response stations over here on the tables, you'll find a card that looks like this. The card, if you can see it, it says prayer code, and on the card there's a QR code, and then there's a number down at the bottom. The QR code, if you pick this up and you have a smartphone, most newer smartphones now with the updates, if you just open up your camera app and you aim it at the QR code, that QR code will point you to a specific location at a place around our city. So it should open up like your Maps app, Google Maps, or whatever your Maps application is, and it'll point you to an exact place somewhere around our city. These cards correspond to 25 different places throughout our city. Some of them are at uh, city buildings, government buildings. Some of them are at schools. Uh, some of them are at, uh, one of them's over at the TPC over here for this week, and uh, one's like in a, sh there's shopping malls, all kinds of different places. What we want to ask you to do is to take one of these cards for you and your family, find where that QR code is pointing you, and at some point during this, during this week, find some time to go to that place physically and to pray at that place. So you may be praying if you're at a school, for instance, you may want to pray for the school systems and for for our teachers and for our students. If you're at a government building, you may want to pray for our, for our government leaders and government officials. You know, if you're at the TPC, you know, I don't know if Tiger's in it this year, but if you like pray for Tiger to make the cut, I don't know. But <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. But you get the point, right? The idea is that all of these places... Physically being there reminds us of the fact that there are places all over this city that need to see and understand God's love. And as you pray for these places, may it cultivate God's love in you for those you are praying for. So I want to encourage you to do that. So if you would pick one of these up, and look, if you don't have a smartphone, or if you're, you're not sure how to work your camera app, it's okay. We're going to have, we have people that are going to be out in the lobby over by guest services, and they're going to have this tag that says, Ask Me, with a little barcode on it. You can go up to them, and they have phones where they can scan your card for you and tell you exactly where that location is. And one last thing. On the bottom of these uh, cards, there's a number. What we want you to do with that number is there's a sheet on each one of these tables. If you would put your family name, and you would put the number that corresponds to the number that's on your card on that sheet, that's a way of us kind of just getting a lay of like where everybody's going and, and making sure we've got everything covered, okay? So if you would do that, I, I'm really excited about this, guys. I think this is an amazing idea, and I'm looking forward to what God's gonna, how God's going to use it in us this coming week. So let's do that now as we continue in worship. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, 
and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. I want to pray for all of you as we, uh, as we leave here in this place. I want to pray for this week. Pray for how these times go with your family as you, as you pray over our city. Lord, we are, uh, we are astounded again at how you have called us and used us. It boggles my mind when I think about the ways, the wonderful responsibility and calling that you've placed on our shoulders. And yet at the same time, Lord, we know it's not of our own strength. It's by your working in the lives of other people. And so, Lord, may we be faithful to just get out of the way where we need to get out of the way, uh, to be courageous where we need to be courageous, to be loving where we need to be reminded that we need to love more and love better and love more deeply. Lord, to be people who are grace, who are full of grace and mercy. And Lord, with all those things, we know that it starts with our understanding and our receiving of our love from you. Knowing that as our Heavenly Father who has sent His Son, that you have given us grace and mercy beyond measure. And Lord, I think about when in the Gospels when Jesus sat and overlooked the city of Jerusalem, and he wept because he saw a city that was like sheep without a shepherd. I pray that for each of us as we go out this week, whatever place we may be at, that we would have the heart of Jesus, the heart that he had in that moment, Lord, that you would impress upon us the same kind of passion and love that Jesus had for the city of Jerusalem in that moment, that we'd have the same heart and passion for the city of Scottsdale and for the surrounding areas that we're going to be in this week. And Lord, whatever you do with those prayers, we pray, Father, that you would move in this city, drawing all people to yourself, that they would know our wonderful, beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Have a great week, guys. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.